Acts chapter 7. We're going to start reading in verse 51. I'm going to read verses 51 through 54, and then I'm going to skip down to verses 57 through 58, and then down to verse 1 of chapter 8. Um, I will take the rest of the text that I'm skipping next week. So let me start with verse 51. The end of Stephen's sermon, really the application of Stephen's sermon. Verse 51 of chapter 7. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the, of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. Verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. In chapter 8, the second part of verse 1, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider your word superintended by your spirit through the hand of Luke for the sake of your church, as we Look at how he recorded Stephen's sermon and the response to Stephen's sermon as he applied it to his audience. As we look at the nature of unbelief, we ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that you would cause us to not be pridefully, spiritually stiff-necked people, but that we would be humble. that your spirit would give us soft hearts, that we would receive your word with repentance and joy. Father, we pray for any here who are not believing, that your spirit would give them eyes of faith. They would trust in your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, um, I preached a fairly historical sermon. Um, in fact, I got comments from people saying, that was an awful lot of history as, as I was walking through some of the history of the Old Testament, um, tying it to Stephen's sermon. And, and I, I want you to understand that it was very historical and unapologetically so for a reason. As is Stephen's sermon, as he responds in this trial, it's very historical and unapologetically so for a reason. And that's because Christianity is not just a mere set of religious ideas, but Christianity is a historical faith making historical claims. Here's, here's the supreme of the historical claims. Jesus Christ is the Lord. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. And what we're saying is these aren't just mere religious beliefs we have. We're actually arguing that these are objective facts. That a man named Jesus was born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth, of a virgin, fully God and fully man, the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, took on human flesh, equal in power and glory to the Father, yet humble as a man, walked among us. Lived under the law that we were subject to. Kept it in every regard. Was perfect in every way. Holy, sinless, undefiled, spotless. Went to the cross and paid our penalty as a vicarious substitute stood in our place and the just wrath of God against our sins was poured out upon him in our place at the cross, and he died. 
was received by the Father. And on the third day, after being buried, on the third day, he went resurrected from the dead. The God-man, declared to be the Son of God in power, vindicated before the entire universe as holy, innocent, undefiled, just, righteous. He is the righteous one. That he appeared to the apostles, to the women followers first, but then the apostles after that. That he appeared to more than 500 people. And that he was ascended to the right hand of the Father and took his place on the throne from where he rules and reigns forever. And that he promised to come again, but in the meantime he sent his Spirit And the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. And the apostles were present for that. And the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost is akin to a king being coronated and giving gifts to his people when he's coronated as king. And he gave the gift of the Spirit so that we might have life. And that he promised to return again to judge the living and the dead to make all things new, to end sorrow and sin and suffering and death. We are claiming that these are objective facts. We're not just claiming this is a religious experience. You understand how crazy that sounds to some people? We're saying that there's a real historical Jesus who went to a real historical cross who was buried in a real historical tomb, who really historically physically rose from the dead, who really historically ascended to the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns right now as king and who will really return. We're saying that he grew up in Nazareth. He became a carpenter. That near the end of his life, he was anointed by John the Baptist, by the Holy Spirit, at his baptism that he began a three-plus-year ministry in which he taught crowds, healed people, cast out demons, performed various signs, trained disciples, faced trials and suffering, that he pointed the whole of the Old Testament to himself and made staggering claims of being Israel's Messiah, that he was eventually put on trial, beaten, publicly executed on the cross, buried in the tomb of Joseph Arimathea, raised on the third day, probably in 33 A.D. That he is now at the right hand of God as Lord and Savior, ever interceding for his people, and that he will return. And we're saying these are not just merely some set of religious beliefs we hold. We're actually saying these are historical facts. That this history is as true as the fact that the American colonies declared their independence, that they fought a revolutionary war, that they formed states, and that those states came together to form a union of states under a federal constitution. We all believe that set of historical facts is unchallenged. We're saying that Christianity is just as historically true as that. Someone might object well, well, everyone believes. Everyone believes that the U.S. exists. I mean, it's hard to deny. We live in it, right? It's hard to deny that this historical set of circumstances took place. Everyone believes there was a revolutionary war. I mean, not everybody believes we went to the moon. They should, but not everybody does. right? But everyone believes there's a revolutionary war. Everyone believes that Jesus is the Savior of the world, though. That's a faith commitment. See, that's not believing a historical record. That's a faith commitment to believe religious claims. And the reason people don't make those faith commitments is because they don't see that in the historical record. In other words, they, they can't see those facts in front of them, so they don't make those kind of faith commitments. And and I understand that objection, but I don't believe that's really the problem. People believe much of the historical record they can't see. We have a better historical record of the events of Christianity than any historical events in antiquity. Any historical events in antiquity. It's not even close. Yet people believe there's a Caesar Augustus. 
They believe there's an Aristotle, and they deny the claims of Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Now, I want you to hear what I said because I want you to be careful what I said. Most people will not deny that there was a Jesus of Nazareth, that he died on the cross, and that people claim to see him risen from the dead. They will deny that he, in fact, rose from the dead. They will deny that he, in fact, ascended to the right hand of God where he rules and reigns. They will deny that he has authority to make particular claims about their lives. They will deny that they even need someone to save them because they will deny that God's just condemnation is really against them. In fact, they may even deny that the cre- what the creation clearly proclaims to them about a creator and what their consciences clearly testify to them about their violation of the creator's law. And the question is, why will people grant so many historical claims of events they cannot see, but when we get to the historical claims made by the cross, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ, these claims which have bearing on their own personal lives and eternal destinies, why do they suddenly sweep all that away as merely religious conjecture? I guess what I'm asking is, why do people fail to believe in Jesus Christ? I don't mean intellectually assent to the truth about Jesus. Lots of people intellectually assent to it, but I mean trust in him, lean upon him, rest in him, look to him as their savior. I want to argue this, that the failure to believe is not an intellectual problem, but a moral problem. Now that, that's a, maybe a startling claim, so I want you to hear me clearly, in, in case I'm not being clear. Those who reject the truth of Jesus do not do so because they've discovered all these factual and intellectual problems with Jesus. Those who reject the truth regarding Jesus do so because, now I want you to hear this, I'm not, because it's strong, because they are morally and spiritually bankrupt. I want to say it in soft tones. My voice gets loud, right? Because it's a very hard thing to say. People reject belief in Christ because of moral and spiritual bankruptcy, not because of intellectual problems. In other words, I'm saying they're hard-hearted. hard-hearted. They're satanically deceived. Paul says that, by the way. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's a strong statement, folks. Unbelievers suffer spiritual deafness and blindness of those who are still in the flesh, who are spiritually dead, who are in slavery to sin, and thus they cannot see the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those are all biblical claims. I could give you a chapter and verse for every one of them. What I'm saying is that there is a heart problem, not an intellectual problem, at the basis of unbelief. Yes, people will claim intellectual problems, but what I'm telling you is at the basis of it, there's a heart problem. And this is precisely the lesson we learned from Stephen's sermon application. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand when I get to the end of this sermon, I'm going to make this abundantly clear. I am not saying those people out there have heart problems that us people in here, we people in here never suffered from. All of us are born in a state of unbelief. All of us. We all are born with the same heart problem. So I want you to understand, this isn't them out there, us in here, don't we have nice good hearts and don't they have wicked, evil hearts. You guys follow me on that? Okay? So please understand that as we walk through this. Because this is precisely the lesson from Stephen's sermon application. Stephen has been defending himself against the charges that he's blaspheming against the law and the temple. And he's been doing so, as we've spent the last several weeks walking through his sermon, by reviewing some of the facts of Israel's history. And as he's reviewed their history, he has shown how Israel, not himself, has been blaspheming the temple and the law in every redemptive historical era. He says, we blaspheme the temple and the law, if you will, under Abraham, under Moses, Joseph, Moses, and under David and Solomon. And today we turn from Stephen's overviewing of Israel's history to the current blasphemy 
of the Israelites before whom he's speaking. Remember, Stephen's on trial. He's being accused of blasphemy. And what he does in his sermon is instead of answering the charges that he's committing blasphemy, he turns the table and he says, no, you're the ones committing blasphemy against God, against the law and the temple. And he's laid that out throughout Acts chapter 7. Now right here, we get to his application. You know, you have a sermon. Here's the case I'm presenting, and you have an application. Here's how it applies to you. And here's Stephen's application. And today, as we turn to his application, we're also going to see the response of those hearing his sermon. It wasn't a pleasant response. When you call people these things, they don't generally respond positively. And as we look at both the application and the response, I hope you will see that unbelief is a moral and spiritual problem. So I'm going to take the sermon really in three parts. One, the application of Stephen's sermon. Two, the response to Stephen's, Stephen's sermon. See how creative those points are? All right. And three, how we overcome moral and spiritual bankruptcy. How do we overcome the moral and spiritual bankruptcy of unbelief? That's the third point. So let's look first at the application of Stephen's sermon. Verse 51 Notice what he does. He turns after he's quoted from Isaiah 66, and he looks at his audience, and he says, you stiff-necked people. Now, this is an interesting way for him to address them. Stiff-necked um, is a term that refers back to what Israel was called in Exodus 32 and 33. If you remember, they built the golden calf, and uh, they make the golden calf have, have really Aaron the priest make the golden calf. Moses comes down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments. As they're there worshiping the golden calf, Moses becomes angry. He looks at Aaron and says, you fashioned this golden calf. And Aaron's response is, well, the people threw their gold in and out popped this calf, right? And to which we all, this <laughs> crazy, it sounds like a child trying to explain what he just did. Um, and so here he is, and, and what is the response Moses responds this very strongly, and, and eventually they're called by the Lord and Moses a stiff-necked people. What does that mean, stiff-necked? It's, it's really a, uh, an idea or analogy that comes from, from oxen. When you want to yoke oxen or put a yoke on oxen to get them to, to till the fields, as you go to yoke the oxen, if an ox keeps his neck up and won't bend his head down for you to yoke him, you call him a stiff-necked oxen. And what they're saying here is the Israelites basically kept their heads up. They would not bow their heads to submit to the, God's law. They wouldn't submit to God's word. In other words, it's a way of calling someone spiritually prideful. You've decided you know better than God. So they're stiff-necked. It's pointed out here, and, and Stephen picks up on that to some degree, and Chapter 39 through 40 in Acts 7. We won't look at that now, but he picks up on that story there. Notice next he says, not only are they stiff-necked people, they're uncircumcised in heart and ears. Now the uncircumcised heart contrasts with Abraham's covenant of circumcision, which is mentioned in Acts chapter 7 and verse 8. God had given Abraham a covenant, made promises to him, and God said there's a sign to the covenant. Now, every covenant has signs. If you think about it, Noah's covenant, what's the sign? I won't flood the earth again. What's the sign? The rainbow. The covenant of baptism, which we're going to, or a new covenant, which we're going to celebrate in baptism this morning, the sign is baptism. Okay? Abraham's covenant, which God makes with him, the sign is circumcision. That's the sign. When you get married, you make vows and promises. You have a sign called a wedding ring. I mean, it's not a biblical thing, but it's something we do, right? I'm not more or less married by wearing this ring. The ring is just a sign of promises I made and promises my wife made. Every covenant has signs attached to them, and this covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, had circumcision attached to it. But what they were supposed to always remember is that circumcision was a of the flesh was always to point to God's command that their hearts be circumcised. That it wasn't just that their male member, if you will, was unclean, but their hearts were unclean. That they needed new hearts. They need to be circumcised in heart. So to say they have an uncircumcised heart is to say that they were unbelieving. They don't trust the promises of God. They don't obey the covenant to say they're uncircumcised ears 
is to say is to point to their refusal to listen. It's like their ears are unclean. They only hear what they want to hear. You know what this is like a little bit. Sometimes, um, you know, my wife's speaking to me, and it's uh-huh, 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 right? You guys know, and she recognizes at some point I'm not really listening or I'm only catching the parts that I want to catch. And she graciously doesn't say, you have uncircumcised ears. She could, right? <laughs> and she might now that she heard me say that. But, <laughs> no. <laughs> but but she, what he's saying is you're, you're, not, you're not listening to God. You're only hearing the things you want to hear. Your ears are plugged up with your own idolatry. To say you have an uncircumcised heart and uncircumcised ears is, is basically to call you idolaters. Then he goes on to tell the Jewish people here, the Sanhedrin and the people who are putting them on trial, that you always resist the Holy Spirit. Always resist the Holy Spirit. That's a charge, by the way, being pulled from Isaiah chapter 63 and verse 10. Isaiah brings this charge against Israel for the rebellion against the Holy Spirit. The Lord has, caused, has always cared for Israel, and yet they rebelled against his word, against his law. And they said, and what Isaiah says is you're rebelling against God's Holy Spirit. You're running off into sin and idolatry, and so you turned against the Lord. Thus Isaiah is say, said that Israel turned against the Lord, and the Lord turned against them. And that's what Stephen's essentially saying to the Sanhedrin, the Jews who are present at this moment persecuting him. You've turned against the Lord, and so he has turned against you. It's a stark contrast, by the way, with Stephen, who we're told earlier, just before the trial, is filled with the Holy Spirit. He's full of the Holy Spirit, but the people persecuting him always resist the Holy Spirit. Stephen is pointing out that he is the one He's the one. Stephen's saying, I'm the one who's being true to the Lord of Israel while you are the ones blaspheming his holy name. Look again at Acts 7.51 in the last part of that verse. He says, as your fathers did, so do you. Now, I want you to follow the, the pronouns here. I want to do a little grammar lesson with you, right? Because when you're reading, it's always helpful to follow pronouns. Notice what he says, as your fathers did, as your fathers did, so do you. That's a second person pronoun. It's a possessive pronoun. Your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets, Old Testament prophets, did your fathers, he's talking to that Jewish audience, the Sanhedrin, not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous ones. Coming of the righteous one. In other words, the prophets of the Old Testament were announcing beforehand the coming of the righteous one, that is the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and your fathers killed them, whom you have now, you've now betrayed and murdered, the righteous one, the Messiah. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. In other words, they didn't keep it. Now, I want you to notice that second-person pronoun, your fathers, because it contrasts with what Stephen's been doing in the sermon so far. Look at Acts 7 and verse 39. Our fathers refused to obey him. Notice a difference in pronoun there. Our fathers refused to obey him. Now, go down to verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of wilderness in the meeting, tent of witness in the wilderness. Look at verse 45. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations. And suddenly he changes to you and your fathers what's happening here. Application of the sermon is happening here. That's what's happening. Historically, Stephen can say that sinning Israel belongs to his heritage too, but an application at this moment, when it comes to the Messiah, sinning Israel belongs only to this crowd of Jews. Because he is filled with the Holy Spirit, Stephen's making a distinction. Because he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he's saying he's part of the believing and obeying remnant of Israel. And because they're continuing in their sin and rejection of the Messiah, they're part of the rebellious and idolatrous Israel. Stephen is saying what Paul later articulates in Romans chapter 2 and verse 28 and 29, when Paul says this, For no one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. 
But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. And the Jews would immediately feel Stephen, the sting of Stephen's bite, if you will, and think to themselves, he's comparing us with Gentile idolaters. Does he not know that we are the children of the covenant, of the promises, of the law, that the Messiah is to come through our line, that we are so much better off than Gentile idolaters? Doesn't he know we're better off because we're Jews? To which Paul, of course, would respond, as he does in Romans 3.9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greek, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Hear that? We're all unrighteous. Christianity has never in its history, from Genesis 1, if you will, through Revelation 22, has never in its history, nor ever will in its history, have as the core message that some are righteous and some are not. It has always had as its core message that one is righteous. Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the son of David, the Messiah. He is the righteous one, and all the rest are unrighteous, and it is only in looking to him that we have any hope. And Stephen presses this accusation home even farther by saying, your fathers killed the prophets who were pointing to the coming Messiah, and you one-upped your fathers by killing the Messiah himself. You killed the righteous one. And you received the laws delivered by angels. When Stephen says this, we pick this up as well in Hebrews chapter 1. The idea that the angels are present as the law is delivered. Remember, trumpets are being blown and all these things are happening in Mount Sinai and the angels are present there and Stephen is exalting the law. And what he's saying is, I'm not blaspheming the law, I'm saying it's delivered by angels. I'm exalting the law. You received the law. This exalted law is delivered by angels and you did not keep it. I mean, do you see what Stephen's saying? You were hard-hearted, spiritually deaf, pridefully stiff-necked and disobedient to God's word. You never trusted the promises to Abraham. You never understood your history. You turned the temple into idolatry. You disobeyed God's law. You blasphemed the Lord. You rebelled against his spirit, and you murdered his Messiah. The Lord sent Jesus, the righteous one, the one who kept the law perfectly in our place, the one who is the telos, Paul says, the goal, the end of the law for all who believe. The Lord sent Jesus, the righteous one, the one who bore the sins of many, taking the penalty of the law upon himself, becoming the curse of the law for us upon the cross to bring forgiveness and sins to all those who believe, and you crucified him. You betrayed him, and you murdered him. And it's not, a lack, it's not due to a lack of clarity or evidence on God's part, but due to your own hard hearts that you are in this spiritually dead and condemned state. Now, I want you to imagine being in the audience hearing this. What's their response like? So that's the second part. Let's look at the response to Stephen's sermon. Look at verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. Um, this word enraged is a Greek word um, that can also be translated cut through the heart. They're cut through the heart. It, it's it's, it's the, of the nature of, it's like their heart's being ripped apart or, or sawn in two. Their hearts are bursting with outrage. 
You probably know what that's like to have your heart burst with outrage, right? I, I do. This happened to me yesterday. <laughs> uh, um, I was at my son's basketball game. See, I, I try to only use myself in sermon illustrations when I'm the, not the hero and just the zero. So here you go. Um, I was at my son's basketball game, and he, he made the play to win the game, and it was beautiful. And I was ecstatic, and the ref made probably the worst call I've ever seen. And we lost the game, basically, because of the call, and uh, waved off the, the, the basket. And I didn't say anything inappropriate, but I didn't say anything I did say quietly. You follow me? Yeah, and uh, uh, <laughs> I was sawn in two. My heart was bursting with outrage, and my voice isn't soft. So anyway, that's what's essentially happening, but ante this thing up. These people have just been called idolaters, the murderers of the Messiah they've been waiting for. And their hearts are ripped apart with anger. They're, they're bursting with outrage. And it contrasts really well with Peter's sermon at Pentecost. I want you to look there because it's a different Greek word used for something, for being cut to the heart. And it's an important contrast. So look at Acts chapter 2. And look at verse 36. I want to start there. Because I want you to hear the application of Peter's sermon right here. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that's Jesus, both Lord and Messiah or Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You hear the application of Peter's sermon? What's the application? Jesus is Lord and Messiah. You murdered him, you murdered the Messiah. Same application as Stephen's sermon, isn't it? You murdered the Messiah, both places. Notice the response, verse 36, or verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Their hearts were pierced, pricked. They came under conviction of sin, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. And several thousand people repented and were baptized that day and added to the number of the church. They're cut to the heart, but it's a different Greek word. In this case, as the application comes, you murdered the Messiah, they repent. They feel conviction of sin. In the previous case in Acts 7, as they're cut to the heart and their heart bursts, bursts if you will, with outrage, they're not asking brothers, what must we do? They're becoming angry, and it says they're gnashing or grounding their teeth at him. What is that? It's interesting, that Greek preposition there, at, can also be translated upon him. I think more properly translated upon him. They're gnashing or grinding their teeth upon him. In other words, the description like, like wild animals that want to rip him apart. So, so when you get an, when your heart is ripped apart with outrage and injustice, you want to rip the person apart. You follow? I didn't want to rip that ref apart, by the way, just, just to clarify. Just to clarify. <laughs> Did not want to do that. But, but this is what's happening here. And here's the thing. The application of Peter's sermon is similar to the application of Stephen's sermon. He accuses the Jews of murdering the Messiah, but the response is dramatically different. The response is dramatically different. In the case at Pentecost, thousands of the Jews, when they're accused of murdering the Messiah, are convicted of sin and repent and believe. And the case here at Stephen's trial, the crowds are not convicted of sin. Instead, they are outraged and they want to kill him. Everything changes right here. Look at verse 57. Stephen begins to talk, and then it says, verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice 
and stopped their ears. We'll have no more of it. We don't want to hear any more of this man's blasphemy, of this outrageous speech. And they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. That's what you do with a false prophet in historical Israel. Now, under Roman rule, they were not allowed to do this, but they did it anyway. They cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And there arose on that day a great, if you look at chapter 8 and verse 1, to see the transition of what's happened. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now what caused the difference? That becomes a question, isn't it? The Jews at Pentecost had circumcised ears and hearts. That's the difference. The Jews at Pentecost did not resist the Holy Spirit. They bent their wills to be yoked to the Lord. They repented. They trusted in Christ. But I guess the question that comes from there is, how come that was their condition in Acts 2, while here the crowd is not in the same condition? Their response is different. What made the difference between these two crowds? See, why does one crowd have a circumcised heart and circumcised ears and bend their neck, in other words, humble themselves before the Lord and obey His Holy Spirit, and the other crowd have a stiff, prideful neck, won't bend before the Lord's Word, has uncircumcised heart and uncircumcised ears, and instead of repenting, they murder the prophet. Why? Why, does, why do you believe and your neighbor does not? How did you overcome the moral and spiritual bankruptcy of unbelief? How to others? That leads to the third point in the sermon, or the third part, overcoming the moral and spiritual bankruptcy of unbelief. Let me start with this. What is the natural, and by natural I mean fallen, as a result of the fall now, everybody since Adam's fall, the natural condition of man, obviously, pre-fall, is that he's holy and upright. But the natural condition now that man has fallen at Adam, what is the natural fallen condition of all men? Well, look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. Here's Paul speaking to his audience, telling them their condition. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. The natural condition is spiritual death. You're not alive spiritually in which you once walked following the course of this world. In other words, you're following the pattern of worldliness, the world's wisdom, if you will. Following the prince of the power of the air. In other words, following the world's wisdom, which is folly, or the wisdom of Satan. From the garden, there's two voices. The father who speaks and says, do this, and Satan who speaks and says, do this. And then there are two voices from then out. God's wisdom and Satan's folly. What he's saying here is, as those who are fallen with Adam and Eve, you're listening to the voice of Satan and not the voice of God. You're listening to worldly wisdom, if you will, and not godly wisdom. The Spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among, verse 3, now listen, among whom we all, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. In other words, we all lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We did what felt good to us. That's not just the condition of some sinners out there. We all once did what felt good to us. What determined everything for us were our own desires. We were completely selfish, as the reformer Martin Luther said. Our hearts were curvatus in se. They're curved in on themselves. We did what we wanted. Carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature, notice that, children of wrath. In other words, we were under the wrath of God like the rest of mankind. 
like the rest of mankind. That is the natural condition as of the fall of man. So the natural man cannot believe. Cannot believe. Did you hear what I said? The natural fallen man cannot, is not able to believe. By believe, I don't mean merely to assent to some intellectual truth. Anyone can assent to intellectual truth. Even demons know that Jesus is the Messiah. By believe, I mean to entrust your life upon, to lean upon, to rest in, to trust in Christ, to come to an end of yourself, to know you have zero faculties to save yourself, zero ability in and of yourself to even look to the one who can save you, and that you need Jesus to save you. By believe, I mean you realize that it isn't faith as some kind of virtue that saves you, but Jesus who saves you through the instrument of faith, and that even that faith is the gift of God by grace. Unbeliever. I'm addressing those of you who are unbelievers, because I know unbelievers walk in here every Sunday. Unbelievers, do you know that your lot is worse than you thought? It's worse than you thought. It isn't merely that you have an intellectual problem. It is that you have a heart problem. You are not only unsaved and unbelieving, you are not even capable of saving faith. You must receive that as a gift. You receive it as a gift. Believer. Believer, do you understand that you contributed nothing? You contributed nothing to your salvation. Ergo, you have no right to pride spiritually. The only thing you contribute at the end of the day is your sin and ungodliness. That's it. Even your faith is a gift of grace. Even your faith is a gift of grace. Paul says that directly. Look at verse 4 of chapter 2 of Ephesians. But God, here's our condition. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, you, you hear anything about yourself in there yet? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, there's you. Dead in your rebellion. There's me. But God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Unmerited favor. You have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That means by adoption, all that is Christ is ours. So that in the coming ages he might show, now listen to what's being shown, not the immeasurable riches of your virtuous faith and obedience, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Messiah Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, by the way, that refers to by grace you've been saved through faith. That's what this refers to. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. I don't want to get into the grammar of this whole phrase here, but grammatically it is necessary that this and it, this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, refers to this phrase, by grace you've been saved through faith. In other words, grace, salvation, faith are all gifted to you. Not your own doing. The gift of God, not as a result of works. So that what? No one may boast. So you should never walk out of here saying, man, I get it and my neighbor doesn't. I get it, and my family member doesn't. I get it, and my coworker doesn't. I get it, and my friends don't. Never. You should never boast. Ever. 
You brought nothing to the table save your sin. God graciously saved you. What you should walk out of here saying is Jesus saves. Jesus saves. You need Christ. Look to Christ. The Spirit of God supernaturally makes you awake to, alive to faith in Christ. That's a work of grace. It is all of grace. That's why Jesus can say to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, the Spirit blows where he wills. He gives new birth to dead hearts. He circumcises the hearts. Jesus says that he gives ears to hear and eyes to see. So why did the Spirit blow on the crowd at Pentecost and not blow on the crowd at Stephen's sermon? Was it because Peter was a better preacher, more winsome and clear? Was it because Peter was better at managing his own tongue? No, if you read the history, Peter is clearly not better at that. So what's the difference in response? Why one crowd does the Spirit blow upon and the other he doesn't? And here's what I would tell you. I don't know. I don't know. That's my answer. Does that satisfy you? I do not know. I have no idea why God did it this way. Here's what I do know. The Lord sovereignly chose to do that work. There it is. I don't know why he did it. That's what he did. So why did God give you a new life, a new heart, saving grace? Because he did. He's God and he graciously, sovereignly chose to do that. You should thank him. But does, doesn't that mean then that I'm helpless, I'm helpless when it comes to changing the hearts of others? That I have no resources of changing the hearts of others and I have no resources in even changing my own heart? And the answer is yes. That's exactly right. However, you are not without means that God may use to the end of changing others and your own heart. While you can't change anyone's heart and you can't change your own heart, you can exercise the means that God may use, that God promises to use toward that end. He promises to use the means of prayer and proclaiming the word. Here's what we do know. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the, of the feet of those who preach the good news. But they've not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. And so we preach, and so we pray. We preach, and we pray. Perhaps if anything drives you to corporate prayer with us, we pray on one Sunday a month at 4 p.m. like today, if anything ought to drive you to corporate prayer with us, it ought to be this. We are utterly dependent upon the sovereign grace of God for our salvation, for the salvation of our children, for the salvation of our friends and family, and for the salvation of the nations. But he has not left us without means by which he promises to work. He has given us prayer and the word. And he says, we have not because we ask not. Listen, I I never want to preach a sermon that falls on uncircumcised ears and hearts. I never want to. I never want to evangelize a friend who looks across at me and says, you're a nut job. I never want that. You guys want that? Who walks away angry. But I can't control any of that. Can't control any of that. What I can do by the grace of God is proclaim the word of God and pray that God will graciously work to make those alive who are dead in their sins. That's what I can do, so that many will be saved. And I guess what I'm saying to you folks is, is 
We're asking you to join us in that. Asking you to join us in that. Pray with us. Proclaim the word with us. Let's ask the Spirit to work to save people. We have 100 plus children who walk out of here every day. Are we on our faces in prayer for them? Recognizing that no good parenting, no good marriage, no right school choice, none of that stuff's going to save them. None of that's going to give them hearts to believe, ears to hear, eyes to see. The Spirit of God is. So you gather to pray, to ask Him to do that. Do we realize our missionaries we're sending out, no amount of training, no amount of good theology, no amount of good lives lived on the mission field is going to bring the nations to salvation. The sovereign work of God's grace as His Word is proclaimed and His people pray is going to bring them to salvation. So are we on our faces asking for that? My neighbor is not going to come to Christ and my family member is not going to come to Christ and my friend's not going to come to Christ because I invite him to a barbecue at my house and make a really nice dinner. Because I treat them just so. They may give me a hearing when I speak. But if I never tell them the gospel, they can't possibly know it through my life. Folks, your life is not the good news. You understand that, right? My life is not the good news. If my life is good news, the whole world is damned. Jesus is the good news. You have to tell them about him. And you got to pray for them. I mean, this is, it's so simple that it evades us. It evades us. We just proclaim the word and we pray. And the Lord does the work. And so we ask you to join us. Tell your neighbors about Jesus. Get on your faces and pray. Join us in corporate prayer. Let's ask the Lord to do this work. We need him to do it. Let me pray. Father, we ask that your son would be exalted in all the earth through us. We ask that you would give people ears to hear eyes to see, hearts to believe. We ask that you would make us humble. You would make us into people who recognize our constant need of your Son, who would never lord over others the grace that's been shown to us, but that we would humbly point to your son Jesus. Father, make us a people who pray, a people who are just utterly dependent upon your sovereign grace at work through your spirit in pointing people to Jesus Christ and convicting hearts and giving new life and faith. Father, give us a desire to see lost people saved. Father, we pray for the unbelievers here that they would turn to your son, Jesus Christ, in faith and so be saved that they would look to him and know that he is their hope, their forgiveness of sins, their righteousness. You would be exalted in that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.